great what God is doing. It's so, so good. And uh, just so you know, Robert, as you're listening to this sermon today, you stole a lot of my thunder. I just want to let you know. But thanks for, thanks for doing that. I really appreciate it. Really appreciate it. No, I really do. I appreciate just the fact that um, this church has been so open. This church is a church that just says, what, where do we go? How do we do it? How do we move forward? How do we serve God? And I just really love In the word. Father God, I just thank you for your goodness and your faithfulness. Thank you how you have encouraged so many here by how you have answered prayer. And um, there are many here, God, that are praying prayers that have been a long time coming. They're still praying those prayers um, and waiting on you, God. So I pray that in the midst of that, you would show your goodness, your faithfulness, show how much you love. When you answer our prayers in ways that we didn't expect, may we um, accept all from you, thankfully, because you are, as Robert said, the king who we serve, and we're so grateful that you're a king that loves us and cares so deeply for us. Pray now as we look in your word that your Holy Spirit would teach us, lead us, and guide us. In your son's name, amen. All right, well, I have a book that I've read probably has had the biggest impact on my life other than the Bible, okay? The book that's probably had the biggest impact on me, it's a book called The Search for Significance. It's by Robert McGee. Now, anybody read that by any chance? Anybody seen it? Okay, bestseller around. Um, it, is a, it is a really, really interesting book. Really what it talks about, it, it identifies four specific mindsets that keep, keep you from knowing that you are valuable to God, to yourself, and to other people. What these things are, he talks about, there's the performance trap. This deals with feeling a need to meet certain criteria in order to experience fulfillment. There's the approval addiction, which tells us we, we need the approval of others in order to feel good about ourselves. There's the blame game that's always looking for the fault and identifying the person or persons deserve, that deserve punishment. And then there's shame. Shame is, overwhelms us through making you, us feel like we just can't change. So what, this, what this book does, though, what this book has, it helps us to learn how to overcome these obstacles that prevent us from experiencing the truth that our self-worth is found only in love and acceptance and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. It's a fantastic. I've gone it's got a workbook. I've, it, we'll go through this probably as a church sometime. It's a fantastic book. I've gone through it with a handful of men. It's been life-changing, and it literally changed my life. This book changed my life. I really struggled, and I still do uh, to a point. I really do with some of these issues. But the truth is, you guys, we all know that we all want to feel like we're significant. We all want that. Significance is the quality of having meaning it's knowing that we're important. Yet really to know if you have, to really know if you're finding significance, you need to be able to ask, two, to be able to answer two questions. Who am I? And what am I here for? Who am I? And what am I here for? The first question, who am I, is a question really of identity, isn't it? It's a question of identity, and it asks us answers, how do, who am I? What it, it helps us to understand pride. It's our dignity. It's our honor. It's how we think about ourselves. That's what this question is about, okay? It's about our purpose. 
Okay, I'm sorry. Yeah, it's about our purpose. It gives us a sense of where we belong in this world. Okay, our identity. Purpose, on the other hand, answers the reason why. Why am I here? Why do I exist? What am I here for? Because having, having purpose makes us feel alive, doesn't it? It gives clarity to life. It gives clarity to the hard situations, the good situations. It really gives us clarity on our existence. Ask yourself this morning, just to yourself, why am I here? What am I here for? Who am I? As followers of Jesus, if you can't answer those questions definitively, this morning's passage is really going to be helpful. And as I've really marinated in this passage, and i got to tell you, this passage was really, I had to struggle with this passage this week, because I really feel like a lot of it had to do with the fact that um, the enemy didn't want me to take it in, to take in the truth of this, because it is chocked full of stuff. As, and it, it's so important. As followers of Jesus, we, need, we know that the word changes us. As McGee says in his book, here's a quote, he says, an accurate understanding of God's truth is the first steps towards discovering our significance and worth. That is so true. So let's take a look at how Peter describes our identity and our purpose, okay? Our identity and our purpose as followers of Jesus. Well, we're breaking this passage down into three sections, okay? The first and the third section are going to give us certain descriptions of our identity and purpose, okay? And the second one, the middle section is really going to validate the whole foundation that this all sits on, okay? So let's jump, let's jump right on in. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifice. Acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. All right, so in this first section here, Peter is telling us, what he's telling us is that our identity is in the fact that we are a spiritual house and a holy priesthood. Okay, this is the first marker of identity, okay? A spiritual house and a holy priesthood, okay? He starts off by using this metaphor of Jesus, okay? And he, call, he calls him a living stone, now, he uses this imagery in two different usages here, okay? As you've noticed, one is one that is rejected by men, and the other one is chosen and precious to God. So the truth is that, really, so often people will give, just really give Jesus very more than just a cursory glance. They'll just say, think about him for a second, and then, but in, in turn, end up rejecting him, saying, you know what, that is not a foundation that I want to build my life on. That's what he's talking about here. Yet as we saw back in chapter one, if you remember, if you were here, God chose Jesus before what? The foundation of the whole world. He chose him to be the savior of the world. So Peter, now he's, he continues this metaphor though, okay? He keeps on going by calling those who have come to Jesus in faith, he calls us living stones, okay? Living stones that are being built up as a spiritual house. What a bizarre metaphor, huh? That's what we are, okay? You'll see a picture here that I have of stones. I want you to, they're like, these aren't actually alive, but that's why I to give you this to think about. This is what the image that he's, Peter's trying to give us. What he's trying to say is that along with Jesus, 
We are a part of the spiritual house that is being built. Okay, this word could also be translated as a temple. But we are a part of this house, okay? As, as God's people, you guys, we are literally God's earthly dwelling. We are, I mean, you could put your name on one of those stones. If you're a visual person, that'll help you. That's what you are. As a believer in Christ, you are a part of something that he is building. No longer, it's kind of like what Robert was saying, no longer was it necessary uh, is it necessary to go into a temple. Back in the day, you had to go into a temple. Prior to Jesus, they had to go to the temple to offer sacrifices. We don't need to do that anymore. We're now actually a part of that temple. That is who we are as believers and it's a living temple. This temple is alive. That's not very alive. We are a living temple that is alive because Jesus is alive. That's why we are alive. Ephesians, in the book of Ephesians chapter two, says this. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So the image of living stones being built together, really, you guys, shows us how important it is that we realize that this Christian life is not an individual sport. It just isn't. I don't, he doesn't say, I'm building you into a stone, into a, just, that's it. That's not at all what he's saying. The truth is that you and I cannot realize our full significance as followers of Christ without the community of other believers. It's just not possible. That's why he's saying this. That's not how God designed the spiritual house. I don't know about you, but this gives tremendous assurance that even when we're dealing with things like the readers of who Peter was addressing, they were dealing with being alienated because of their faith. This gives tremendous hope in knowing that they're not alone. They're not alone in all this. They're a part of something so much bigger. We are a part of something so much bigger. We come to church on Sunday morning so we can see that we're a part of something so much bigger. But this is nothing compared to what's happening around the world. Nothing. We need to see this. We are being built. You meet another Christian in another country somewhere, you are a part of the same spiritual house that he is building. That is encouraging. William Barclay, our commentator, he was telling a story that conveys a similar of this about a Spartan king who was boasting to a visiting monarch that came about the walls of Sparta. He was just totally um, boasting about this. And as the visiting king uh, looked around and walked around, he couldn't see any walls. He goes, where are the walls? He goes, where are the renowned walls of Sparta? He asked the king. The king pointed out, he pointed to his army. And he said, these are the walls of Sparta. Every man a brick. We are so much bigger than Sparta. This is why working so hard to make sure that you are connected and fully known, I'm talking fully known by other believers, is so important. So important. 
They need, we need this. We need to be spending our time together outside of this building right here and even outside of some of the other things where we gather with Christians. We need to be knowing each other because we're living stones. We are a temple. We are a house together. So we need to be, we need to be rubbing shoulders with those other stones. We need to know that we all have a purpose and we all have a place. As, we're being, as we are being built up into the spiritual house, we are reminded also of the role that we play, okay? We have a role to play. In the Old Testament, priests were the only ones that were allowed to go into what was called the Holy of Holies, okay? They were the only ones allowed to go in there to offer sacrifices and to worship on, uh, on behalf of the entire um, um, nation, at the crucifixion of Christ, like um, Robert mentioned, the veil, there was a huge veil that was between the Holy of Holies and the rest of the temple. It was ripped in two from the bottom to the top. No longer were priests needed to mediate. Not, they didn't need that anymore. All the believers became priests. Everybody, we are all priests. We all have direct access to God, just like the priests in the Old Testament have. We can go directly to God, just like Robert said, in prayer, Confession, praise, worship, everything. <laughs> what an amazing opportunity we have to go, like Robert said, the king of kings, go right before him. No mediator necessary. Do not pass go, do not collect $200. We just go. We just go right there. It's wonderful. Now, as priests, we have a purpose. We serve a purpose, or we have a purpose, okay? Just as priests of the Old Testament, they had a purpose to offer sacrifices to God on behalf of the people, Peter says that we have been chosen by God, and here it is, to offer up spiritual sacrifices, okay? That is our purpose, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, it says. Now, what does that look like? What does that actually look like to offer up spiritual sacrifices? Well, sacrifice, what does that mean? It means to surrender, okay? We surrender. To offer up spiritual sacrifices is to surrender to God every aspect of our lives, every single part of our lives. Many of you are familiar with this verse, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, is a great verse for this. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. You see, the offering, us, offering up spiritual sacrifices means surrendering our thoughts, our, our every desire, our emotions, our hopes, our dreams, our very wills to God. Everything. That's what being a spiritual sacrifice. That go, doesn't that go so against our flesh, though? It goes against mine. It's offering everything. It means saying yes to the things that cause me to be more like Jesus. Even if it means doing, saying, thinking, or being something that is difficult or out of my comfort zone, okay? But it also means saying no to anything that might keep me from being more and more like Jesus. These are spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God. Remember, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Just you're sacrificing something doesn't mean it's acceptable to God. These are the things that are acceptable to God. We're just giving of our entire self, our entire will over to God. Okay. So this is what God desires. It really is. 
This is what God desires. It's what he requires. And really, it's what he deserves. Everything that we have, that's hard, so hard. Well, Peter now goes on to validate this. This is the middle part I was telling you about. To validate or build on this concept of a spiritual house that is built on a, cor- built on a cornerstone, Jesus. Okay, verses six through eight. For it stands in scripture, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So, so the honor is for you who believe But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as as they were destined to do. So what Peter's doing here is actually he's quoting. All these verses are quotes from the Old Testament. Here he's quoting from Isaiah 26, which was an Old Testament prophecy about Jesus being the cornerstone that would be laid in Zion. Zion was referred to where the temple was going to be, the mountain where the temple was gonna be uh, in Jerusalem. Now, cornerstone, this whole concept of a cornerstone. I don't know, we don't think about cornerstone too much these days, and that's obviously not a cornerstone from biblical times, because 1922. Um, you young people might think that's biblical times, but that's not. Um, <laughs> Um, cornerstone, this whole concept came really, it comes from the setting of a stone in a masonry foundation, okay? It was important because all the other stones would line up with this stone. Where How this stone was laid would deter, determine how this foundation would go, determine the position really of the entire structure. So Jesus being chosen as a precious cornerstone is a reference to the fact that we have a guarantee that we have a sure foundation of of this spiritual house has a strong foundation that we as believers are a part of. We don't have to worry about, oh, my my fellow Christian, he's kind of, he really blew it, don't worry. The foundation is strong. The foundation is going to hold. The tiles are blowing off your roof. My neighbor's roof is going, Joe's roof was blowing on the wind last night. The foundation's strong. The foundation is strong. Jesus is our foundation. And those who put their trust in Jesus, he says, can know they think that their trust will never, ever result in shame. We will never, ever find ourselves in a place where we have to be, we're put to shame, maybe by the world, but put to sh- not never put to shame by God because he's never gonna be disappointed in us. We don't have to be disappointed ever. Oh, he didn't come through. God didn't come through. Oh, bummer. We don't have to worry. That'll never happen. There will never be shame because of the foundation. We blow it, but the foundation is always, always strong, okay? Not only will believers also never be put to shame, he says, or be disappointed, but according to verse seven, if you're looking in your Bibles, believers are honored by God because of Jesus. I told you there's a lot in here. There's a lot. We are honored by God because of Jesus, because Jesus is precious to the Father. So that gives us great honor. To honor someone is to value them. Do you see, you see what Peter's doing here? Because we have put our trust in Jesus, we in turn, as Christians, we gotta get this in our head. We're not just loved by God, we are valued by God because of Jesus. I think we forget that. We think, I'm not very valuable, or you don't know, my life has been a mess. Or, 
If you have put your trust in Jesus, you have value to the God of the universe. Value. You are, that means you're important. What was that? You is important. You is, I don't know what that, from, what was that movie? The Help, yeah, sorry. Movies always pop in. My, my whole family talks in movies, okay? So it's hard. We sit around the dinner. When my boys come over to dinner time, we all talk. It, they talk in movies and TV shows. So sorry if I, if I go off on those weird tangents. That's just going into my family mode. Um, so that's what he's saying here. And I want you to hear this, you guys. Hear this. Our true identity completely hinges on our identity being found in Christ. You can tweet that, you can put that on your forehead, whatever you need to do, that is the truth of here, that hear this, that our true sense of identity completely, 100% hinges, it hinges on our identity being found in Jesus. Not what we do, not how we look, not how good we are, or even not how bad we are. That's not where identity lies, he's saying, because we're a part of and Jesus is the cornerstone. You can't ruin this. You can't shake it with your own behavior. You can't do anything to it. It is strong because it's from Jesus. Now, but what about those who reject Jesus? It's okay. It's okay. That's great. Living it out. Living it out. That's fine. Um. What about those who reject Jesus, okay? We see that Jesus actually becomes a cause for them to stumble. That's what he says here. They causes them to stumble. Look, Acts chapter four, verses 11 and 12 says this. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, and there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You also see John 14, 6, as Jesus said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, causes, no one comes to the Father except for me. These truths are stumbling blocks to people, big time in our society. Huge for those that don't believe. People think, that's narrow-minded. That's not very inclusive. That's pretty intolerant. Jesus is the only way to God. That's what the Bible clearly says. People stumble over that message all the time. That's what it means he's a stumbling block. We see here that those that reject Christ, really they do it at their own peril. They actually stumble. Here's the thing. People want to be obedient, they want to be good, but the reality is they stumble over the fact that Jesus is the only way, and what they actually stumble into is disobedience. They stumble into disobedience and sin. That's what he's saying here. One of the commentators I read this week said, one cannot simply step over Jesus to go on about the daily routine and pass him by to build a future. Whoever encounters him is inescapably changed through the encounter. Either one sees and becomes a living stone or one stumbles as a blind person over Christ and comes to ruin, falling short of one's creator and redeemer and therefore of one's destiny. That's powerful. Jesus is the cornerstone in which all our hope is built. All of our hope. Did we sing that already this morning? We're gonna sing that. Sorry. 
stole your thunder. Darn, sorry. Oh, mine was stolen first. <laughs> All right. Our identity. We see that our identity, we see here that our identity is um, in, as found, at, oh, I'm sorry, I've totally lost my place because all that. Jesus is the cornerstone. <laughs> now, these first two verses, now is, in our last two verses, we see, um, going to see that these last ones, we're going to see another description of our identity and purpose, okay? We're going to look at the last two verses real quick here. Um, this, let's talk about our identity and our purpose again. Let's look at verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So here we see where another place where identity comes from. Our identity is in that we are people of God. It's in that we are people of God. Peter uses four phrases here to describe the identity that we have in our relationship with God through Jesus. He uses, he uses this passages originally referring to Israel. With these passages, you're gonna, you're gonna say, that, why these are weird words, holy priest, why is he calling? Because these are passages that really actually referred to Israel back in the Old Testament, but now include followers of Jesus. So look at the first one. The first one is that we are a chosen race. We saw that we are a chosen race. Now a race refers to people that are descended from a common lineage. So that what he's doing is, once again, he's the reference to Israel as God's chosen people back in the Old Testament. Okay, he specifically chose them. So he's doing that with us. And what he's basically saying, Peter's saying here, is no matter what your, your race is, no matter what your religious background is, for those that have begun this new life in Christ because of Jesus' resurrection, they now are constituted as a new race. It's amazing, a new race that's chosen by God's grace. We are part of a brand new race. Let's keep going. The second phrase that describes the honor, the honor we share with Christ in all this is, our, is that we are a royal priesthood. This describes us a royal priesthood. In making his covenant with Israel, back in Exodus chapter 19, God said this. He said, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, keep my command, covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be it, and it, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You see, it was God's design that Israel be set apart from all the other nations in order to serve Him and to be obedient to Him just as the priests were set apart. See, Peter's saying that as followers of Jesus, we are to perform the same function that they were, the same function with respect to the nations that are scattered around us. We're supposed to be set apart. We're supposed to be different. By our obedience to God, we are holy, and we are set apart with respect to the people around us. All Christians throughout the whole world, this is really cool, actually, we are spread out, Christians are spread out through all the whole world, but we're one nation, okay? We are one nation. Okay, the third phrase that describes this is we are a holy nation. 
Remember how we defined holy a few weeks ago? To be holy means to be, never make a mistake? No. To be holy means to be set apart. To be set apart from sin for God. So as a, whole, as a whole, to be a holy nation is to be a people that are set apart for God. You and I share a a people, a race of people around the world because you know why? Because we're set apart to do something, to be holy. We talked about what it means to live a holy life. Once again, this is all an allusion to Israel in the Old Testament. Israel was chosen by God to live apart, okay, in order to display his power. That's why the whole, why was Israel chosen? God, you're my people and you're the ones I want show the whole rest of the world how amazing I am. That's your job. That's why I'm choosing you, okay? I want you to show them you my grace, my mercy, my goodness. Now, I remember when we used to live in Germany, we were missionaries in Germany for four and a half years, and then we would, the beauty of being missionaries right in the middle of Germany was that a lot of cool places are not that far away. So we got to see a lot of cool things uh, while we were living there. But you could always tell who the American tourists were. It wasn't really hard. It wasn't really hard. Three things really stood out. And if you've traveled, maybe you've noticed this too. Three things stood out um, uh, for us. They were overweight. They were white tennis shoes. And they were really loud. Okay? These are the three things that stood out like a sore thumb. And then we'd even get to know the German people. And they'd go, why are you people so loud? You know, they're crazy, you know. And it's true. This is what made them stood out. Let me ask you, do our actions represent the citizenship of the nation that we are? You got to understand something. If you don't know this, the world does not look at America as like, oh, that is the, that's what I, I, I want. I want to be a they don't look, there's a lot of people that do, but a lot of people look at America and they go, what? Do people look at us as Christians and go, what? It's the same kind of thing. That's what he's saying. Are we representing our nation? Not America. God's not a Democrat. By, yeah, yeah, by the way, God's not a Republican. Did anybody tell you that? He's not. He's not a Republican. He's not a Democrat. He's not an independent. That's not who he is. We are a part of a nation that is his, and it's God. Okay, do we represent that? Okay, fourth phrase that describes um, this is we are a people for his own possession. We are people for his own possession, or if you have an NIV, it says God's special possession. That's amazing. Because of the holy and priestly character that we have because of our relationship with Christ, we belong in a new way. We belong in a way to the rest of the world. And I know this is weird, but we belong to, the, to God in a way that the rest of the world just does not. It just does not. Just like Israel, we're God's special, chosen people. All God's people are chosen for his possession. Now, because of Israel's failure to keep the covenant that was made with God, if you know your Old Testament, they were running after other gods. They indulged in pagan practices. They no longer were a special possession by God, of God, because they forsook their role as royal priesthood and a holy nation. Yet in the book of Hosea, God says this is what's good about the good news of that, the falling. If you read, basically the Old Testament is about a ton of people failing. 
okay? <laughs> it's a lot, about a lot more than that. It points to Jesus. But there's a lot of failure in the, in the, in the Old Testament. I can relate. Can you? So, good news was back in the Old Testament, the book of Hosea, God speaks of a time when he would restore his royal priesthood and holy nation, a time when he will pour out his undeserved mercy and love in order to, again, to have a people for his own possession. Look at Hosea chapter 2, verse 23 says, and I will sow for her myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy, which was a person's name, and I, will have, and I will say, not to my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. So the very people, to this very metaphor that he had created, shown with the people's names, he now was saying, listen, you, were no, you weren't my people anymore. You were no longer, I can't, you're not my possession. You have just decided to dis, dis, disown me. But I will again return to you, that's how much I love you. See, what, what Peter's trying to do here is he's telling his readers that because of what Jesus has done on the cross, because of God's incredible mercy, and because of coming to faith in Jesus, God has fulfilled that very promise that he made. And we now constitute this people that are chosen. We are priestly. We are a holy possession by God. And what this does is this makes our other purpose very, very clear. He says it right in there. He says it's to proclaim his excellencies. Or what it says really in the original language, it says his excellent character. Because of all these things that you are, because this is your identity, here's your purpose. Your purpose is to proclaim his excellencies. How do we do that? How do we proclaim God's excellencies? Well, we already saw in Romans chapter 12 by presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice. That's our spiritual worship. Well, this verse says, and I'd like to just say it's because with our lips. With our lips. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 15 says, through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. As God's people, we are to declare his excellencies throughout the world, out the earth. That's our purpose. What our purpose is, is we are, the, we are supposed to be the ones, like Israel was supposed to be the ones back in the day to say, look, you nations, we're different. God is amazing. We're not perfect, but God is amazing. And point to him. That's what we're to do with our words. Our very words should be proclaiming how that is through our praise, through our worship, how we talk to people, how we tell people about God. All these things are so important. We're to declare his excellencies because he deserves it. God so deserves it, but it's also so that other people will know how incredibly good and how incredibly wonderful God is when, we, when they hear us singing his praises. You ever do that? You ever have a friend where you see their friend that's been talking about someone, you, talk, you go to a friend, you say, wow, I was just with Susie yesterday, and man, she was singing your praises. I love when someone said, don't you love that? 
someone was singing my praises? Awesome. <laughs> yeah, that feels really good. You know, I really like that person now. <laughs> They're my new best friend. Well, that's, that's how it works also with God. When we sing the praises of God and we tell how wonderful God, we share these testimonies that we just heard this morning about how wonderful God is. We need to be sharing with people what God has done in our life. I think he has done amazing things. He's done amazing things in your life. He's brought you out of sin into a relationship with the God of the universe. Tell that to people. They might look at you weird, but you're singing his praises. They might stumble over that. That's okay. But let God do the rest. Let God do the rest. Sing his praises. Tell about how wonderful God is. Wherever you go, when you talk to people and someone says, oh, that's amazing that you can do that. Tell them, you know what, God has really gifted me. And I know that's something that people say all the time. Touchdown, God, yeah, you know, all that stuff. But if people stop here, they, you know what, why do you keep, you keep giving God? The, you talk about God whenever something great happens. You're singing his praises. That's our purpose. That's why we're here. We need to stop being closed mouths. We need to stop worrying about what people say, what people will think about us when we talk about Jesus. We're to proclaim his incredible excellencies, how wonderful he is. Even when life is really hard, people say, wow, you're able to tell God is really good. You love God. He's excellent. And you're going through that. Yep. Because I know he's faithful. Because I know he's good. I know he still loves me. People are blown away by that kind of stuff. Blown away by it. So next time you begin to feel down about yourself or you're feeling this lack of significance, I want you to do two things, okay? Two things I want you to do. When you're feeling down and a lack of significance, and if you're anything like me, that's once a week at least, okay? Two things. Remember where your identity comes from. It's easier for us to look at the circumstances. Remember where your identity comes from. Once again, Lion King, remember. You know, <laughs> you know remember where it comes from. Not in how your life situation is right now. Not how things are going. Your identity is in Christ, that firm foundation below this spiritual house that we're building. And the second thing is to live, as, is to remember your purpose. Remember why we're here. Remember why God has me here, to sing his praises, to offer myself as a holy and living sacrifice. Will I make mistakes? Will I feel like I gave God a black eye? I might feel that way sometimes, but that's not my, that's not, I'm forgiven he sees me as a royal, I'm a royal priest, what? But we still do it. And then we live that out fully wherever we are. Live it out. Live out your identity. Live out your purpose right where, I'm not, I'm not giving you some Tony Robbins, no offense. No, you know, speaking up, you know, hey, feel good, pull yourself up. What I'm telling you is live out the truth that is in you. And sometimes what that's gonna take is digging deep. Okay, what's that truth? Because the enemy is gonna do everything he possibly can to hide the truth from you. Everything. Okay? He does it to me all the time. You've heard that Mondays are the hardest days for pastors. More resignations are turned in by pastors on Mondays, they say, um, than any other time. I haven't felt that way yet, so. <laughs> but it's too because whenever I, I we're attacked, because we're attacked. Mondays is my day off. I let my guard down. I try to relax. Oh, Rob, you could have said that better. Rob, you could have done this. Oh, Rob, why did you? Rob, you should have gave that person a call. You, should, you forgot to write a note. 
you, did, you went too long in the sermon, which I did. Um, you, um, you know, all these things. And he's going to do the same thing to you whenever you step out. But then I got to go back and go, wait a second. What's more of my identity? My identity is not what you, what you guys think about me. My identity can't come from that. Unfortunately, I struggle with that, like we all do. But my identity isn't who Jesus is. The foundation, the strong foundation of the house and my purpose. And when I live out my purpose, I feel joy, peace, and contentment. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for loving us so much, for meeting us right where we are. I want to pray for my friends here that you would do that very thing. Meet them right where they are in the midst of doubt, in the midst of pain, confusion, joy, contentment, all those things, God, that we tend to gauge how our life is going. But God, I pray that you would help them to gauge their life on Jesus, on the found, that firm, strong cornerstone that we can base our faith on that will never disappoint, ever. Even though life disappoints, others disappoint, we even disappoint ourselves. So God, I pray that every one of us in this room would know your goodness. We would live out our identity. We would live out our purpose so that, God, our significance would be strong, not because we've done so well, but because we are being the people you designed us to be, living in your grace, swimming in that ocean of grace and goodness, God. Thank you for it. And we know it's all possible because of your son. And it's his name we pray.